Okay, <clears throat> we'll, we'll go ahead and get started tonight, and we're going to be in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, um, but before we get there, we'll do some preliminary uh, kind of introductory uh, issues uh, with, with the book of Jonah. So we'll pray to start out, and then we'll do these introductory things, and then we'll read uh, and look at the first three verses tonight. Okay, so let's pray, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the time to be together tonight. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word that you've given to us. Lord, we pray that you might uh, enliven us. Lord, that you might quicken us by your word. Lord, that you would teach us and sanctify us in the truth. Lord, help us to understand, um, Lord, what it means for you to be a God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, as you uh, forgive, Lord, those who have committed sins against you. And Lord, we pray that as we study and read throughout uh, the book of Jonah, Lord, we might be reminded uh, that even the greatest of sinners, uh, Lord, are not beyond redemption and not beyond your ability to save and to draw them and bring them to repentance. So Lord, may that give us great hope um, with those that we love who are still dead in their sin. And Lord, great hope as well, even for our own uh, continuation of our salvation. So, Lord, be with us, help us as we read and study tonight, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we mentioned last week that <clears throat> Jonah is really a companion book uh, with the book of Nahum. Uh, it was addressed uh, concerning the same group of people, the city of Nineveh, Nahum pronouncing the final verdict against them and the judgment of God that was coming upon them uh, because of their sins. The events of the book of Jonah <clears throat> happened about 150 years before uh, the events of the book of Nahum, before the actual fall and, de and the demise of the city of Nineveh. And it uh, is a uh, very surprising, uh, remarkable turn of events in what happens in the book because these people who are so notorious and so wicked uh, repented when the prophet came to them and preached the word of God to them and called them and pronounced the judgment upon them. And in these two books you have really exemplified uh, various attributes of God, things that are true of God's character and of His nature. And if we go to Exodus chapter 34, these, these two twin attributes of God's mercy and of God's judgment <clears throat> are here exemplified when the Lord is revealing Himself to the prophet Moses. Exodus chapter 34, we'll read verses 1 to 9. Says, now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which were which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So we cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, and as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. 
He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Here in verses 6 to 7, we have the Lord revealing himself to uh, Moses. And there, at the end of it, he mentions that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Those who are guilty, those who are unrepentant sinners, they will not go unpunished, but eventually the wrath of God will come for them and God will execute His judgments upon them. That is what we saw in the book of Nahum. Can God be a God of justice, of righteousness, of judgment, of wrath, of condemnation? And the answer there was absolutely. That that is not inconsistent with the character and nature of God as He is revealed to us in the Bible. But also before that, He says that He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and truth. That He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins. That this also is true of God, that God is a God of mercy, of compassion. He is a God who forgives sinners. He forgives their sins, their transgressions, and their iniquities. And this is what the book of Jonah is addressing. Can God be merciful? Is this true of the character and nature of God? And here in the book of Jonah, we see that even to the worst of sinners, even to those who were great sinners against God, if they repent... God will be merciful to them and God will forgive them of all of their sins and transgressions. As we mentioned earlier, the book of Jonah is written about 150 years before the book of Nahum, at the beginning of uh, about the 8th century uh, B.C. There was at this time a short reprieve from the Assyrian domination that was taking place at this time. During this period of time, the Assyrian Empire was the most dominant empire in that part of the world, but that dominance would ebb and flow a little bit, right? There would be periods of time where they would have a greater dominance, a greater power and influence in that part of the world, and then there would be periods of time where that dominance might wane a little bit and, there, and, and not be as exerted as much, but then it would come back in an even stronger way. Well, this is kind of the period of time in which the book of Jonah is written. There is a short reprieve in terms of their dominance and their harassment of the people of Israel. That they are not under their rule. They're not being oppressed by them as they have been in former days. However, it is just the calm that is before the storm. Because in the later part of the 8th century, the Assyrian Empire roars back to all of its strength and power, and they go and they begin to inflict great evil upon many uh, other nations. And God actually uses them as His rod, right, as His instrument of justice against His own people, Israel. And it is during the 8th century that the Assyrians come and decimate and destroy the northern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom in 722 B.C., 722 and 586, those are the two dates in terms of the northern and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom in 722 BC was destroyed by the Assyrians and they were displaced. They were taken out of their own land. They were dispersed amongst the nations. And as in terms of a kingdom, they never were a kingdom again, right? The kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, that dynasty was completely destroyed 
and those people and those tribes were scattered and dissipated right out into the world. Though Israelites did come and reoccupy that territory of land, they never were their own kingdom again. Then the southern kingdom in 586 BC, and that was by the hands of the Babylonians. They took them captive, but then 70 years later, they were restored back to their own land uh, under uh, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and those that God used during that time. So at this period of time, the Assyrians are weaker, but they will come ultimately at the end of this century and they will bring about the demise and ruin of the northern kingdom. Now, the book of Jonah is written for the people of Israel, right? It's for their benefit, though primarily the, uh, the um, ones being described are primarily Jonah the prophet, and then secondly, the Assyrians, right? These are the ones that he is going and prophesying to, but the book is actually written for the sake and for the benefit of the people of Israel, that it is delivered to them. To them belong the oracles of God, and this is a part of those oracles that were delivered to them. So it's written for them for their benefit, and it is a timely book because they are about to experience the wrath of God. The judgment of God is about to come on Israel because of their sin. And Nineveh stands as a lesson for the people of Israel. Right? God is angry with Nineveh. This is the pronouncement that Jonah is making to them. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And why are they going to be overthrown? Because of their sin. Because God is angry with them because of the many sins that they have committed against Him. However, though God is angry toward them, and though God pronounces His judgment that is going to come upon them, ultimately, they receive compassion and mercy from the Lord. And what changed? Repentance. Repentance. They repented of their sin. When the judgment was pronounced to them, instead of being hard-hearted, instead of being obstinate, they humbled themselves, they repented of their sins, and the judgment that was announced to them was averted. God did not bring it to pass upon them. Well, Israel, the same thing is true of them. Israel is also committing great sins against God. God is angry with them. God is sending His prophets to them because He has compassion on them to bring them to repentance. And if they will repent of their sins then God will also be merciful and God will be compassionate to the people of Israel if they repent of their sins. So it is for their benefit in order to produce an illicit repentance in them. Now, ultimately, we know they don't repent. And that's not contrary to the will or to the sovereignty of God, because even in this example given to them, it highlights their own sin and wickedness, and it brings their judgment and condemnation upon them in an even greater way, because they prove themselves to be even worse sinners than the men of Nineveh. The men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, but the men of Israel will not repent at the preaching of many prophets that are sent to them. And this lesson is good for us today as well, because God's character does not change. His nature is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we read from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is still true of God today, that God is merciful. He is compassionate. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He does forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. However, it is also still true today that God will by no means clear the guilty. 
and those who persist in their sin and who refuse to repent and obey and believe the gospel, they will receive the wrath of God. So when we read the book of Jonah, it should elicit within us the need to repent, right? To repent and to receive mercy and compassion from the Lord, not to be hard-hearted and receive His judgment and condemnation. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Isaiah 1, 18 to 20 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There, again, the Lord is calling His people, reminding them of their sins, which are as scarlet, but they can be white as snow. Your sins can be washed away. But what does it require? What does God require of man? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We must repent of our sins. We must put our faith and our hope in the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And this also is being taught in the book of Jonah as well. Also, we would say in terms of introduction, the book of Jonah is unique among the prophetical books because it contains very little oracle. Right, oracle meaning the, the book of Nahum was all oracle. It was pronouncements of judgment of the people against their sin. But Jonah contains very, very little of this. The majority of it is a narrative, a narrative about Jonah and his life and his experiences and interactions both with God and with people and all the things that happen surrounding him. The call of God upon his life, his response in fleeing from the Lord, his interaction with the sailors, his prayers to God, his going and fulfilling the call of God, and then God's dialogue with him while he's out there watching to see if the destruction would come upon the people of Nineveh. So it is a prophetical book, but it doesn't have a lot of oracle in it. It is mostly a narrative about Jonah, and it is in the person of Jonah that he is an object lesson that we learn the, uh, the truth that we need to see and understand from the book of Jonah in this interaction between Jonah and the Lord, right? It's bringing to, to uh, bear various misconceptions and misunderstandings that Jonah has about God and God bringing those things to light through this experience in Nineveh and with what God does there to bring all these things to the surface so that we might contemplate and think about these things as well. And everything that happens to him is written for our benefit, right? It's for us and for our benefit that these things have been delivered to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here, he's speaking specifically about the wilderness generation and the things that happened to them uh, after their leaving of Egypt while they were there in the wilderness. But it would also apply to the book of Jonah. The things that happened to Jonah happened to him as an example for us, for our benefit, right? So that we might have instruction so that we might know the will of God. This is why it's been delivered to us. Also, another passage that speaks in this way is Romans 15, verse 4. 
Romans 15, verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So there, whatever's written in the earlier times is written for us. Everything in the Bible is written for our benefit, so that we might learn and be taught and gain insight into the will of God, into who God is, into an understanding of who we are, of the way of salvation, of sin, of judgment, of righteousness. This is what the Bible is teaching us. It is teaching us these spiritual realities in many and various ways. Sometimes it's doing it by pronouncements, by oracles, such as the book of Nahum. At other times it's doing it by narrative, such as the book of Jonah. Most of the book centers around Jonah's misconceptions and his coming to terms with God's ways in the world. Right with what God is doing in the world. And it's, in that way, it is somewhat similar to the book of Job. Right? Job had certain assumptions, misunderstandings about God that needed to be fleshed out for Job's benefit, but not only for Job's benefit, but for who else's benefit? For ours, because these misconceptions are common to man. Right? These types of thinkings, this type of behavior resides in the flesh. It was in the flesh of Job, there were things in the flesh of Jonah, and those are things that are common to all men, common to us as well. And this is why they're brought to the surface, they're brought to light, so that God can deal with these things, not only for their benefit, but also for our benefit as well. Right? In the case of Job, it was Job's sufferings that brought to light things that needed to be addressed and corrected in terms of his theology, in terms of his Christian life. Again, not only for his benefit, but for ours as well. And the same is true with the prophet Jonah. Misconceptions, right, bad attitudes about God's mercy and God's patience. That is the primary issue that Jonah needs to be addressed on. He does not understand properly the mercy of God, the patience of God. He doesn't understand the character of God in that regard, nor does he understand the sin of man, right? His own sin and the sin of other men as well, right? Because he's thinking in terms of how could God be merciful to the men of Nineveh? How could God show mercy and compassion to the Assyrians who were very wicked people whose sin was egregious, but it was also very personal, personal against Jonah and personal against his people. And it's very likely that Jonah uh, and the people he knew and loved, that all of their lives had been impacted in one way or another by the atrocities committed by the Assyrians, that they all would have known people who had been killed, whose fathers or grandfathers had died at the hands of these wicked men, whose children had been enslaved, whose women had been raped, whose uh, goods had been looted and pillaged by these people. So these are a people who have committed great personal sins against the Israelites and against Jonah and his friends, his family, his loved ones. So there was naturally a deep-seated hatred and animosity against these people. And it's hard for us to, I think, many times uh, reconcile or deal with that because we as a people, uh, in, in terms of America, None of us have ever experienced uh, some foreign invader coming 
and oppressing us and committing great atrocities in our own homeland, right? And so that type of animosity and hatred that is developed in a people against another group of people who do those kinds of things, it's hard for us to understand, but it is a reality that still exists in the world today, that there are groups that have great prejudices against others, and some of it is legitimate because they have committed unthinkable atrocities against them, even when we lived in Norman. Before we went to seminary, we worked at a Chinese ministry. And they still had a lot of issues with the Japanese because of what they did in World War II. And if you've ever read the accounts of what the Japanese did to the people of China and the people of other Asian countries during World War II, it's unthinkable that people could be so barbaric and so savage toward others. And they still had great animosity toward them, and it was something that we would have to address every once in a while because you can't let that come into affect the way that you view people and the way that you view other believers. Well, this is the case with Jonah. And Jonah does not like the idea that God would be merciful to the Assyrians. That is his big problem. He does not like it. He doesn't want it to happen. He does not want God to be merciful to the men of Nineveh. He wants him to destroy them, to judge them, and to condemn them to hell. Is this attitude right? Is this a proper way that we should live in the world toward our fellow man and even toward those who are legitimately our enemies? Is it a violation of God's justice for Him to be merciful to people like the men of Nineveh? Right? This is what is going on. How could God even begin to be gracious and compassionate to people like this? And again, that shows a misunderstanding of the nature of sin. Right? It is true that it is right to think in terms of how could God be merciful to them. But if we're going to apply that standard to them, who else do we need to apply it to? We have to apply it to ourselves as well. And yet we often fail in the same way. We have no problem with God being merciful to us. We want God to be merciful to us. We have no problem with God being merciful to our friends, with Him being merciful to our loved ones, with Him being merciful to our countrymen, to Him being merciful to people who are like us. But we don't like it when God is merciful to our enemies, to those who have sinned against us, those who have slighted us, those who have committed personal offenses against us, those who have done these types of things against me, Many times we would rather God give them wrath and judgment and condemnation than we would Him be merciful and compassionate and forgive them of their sin. Do we have that attitude? Would we prefer God's judgment upon our enemies? Or would we prefer God to be gracious and merciful to those who have sinned against us? Would we rejoice if one of our enemies repented of their sins and we were reconciled to them? Or would we be disappointed because now we don't get to long for their judgment and condemnation any longer. And that's something that we must consider. We have to think about these things because we can't have this kind of attitude within ourselves. We don't want to be like the wicked servant who was happy to receive forgiveness for the 10,000 talents that he owed the king, but who was unwilling to grant the same mercy to his fellow slave who owed him a much smaller sum. This is the problem going on in the book of Jonah. Jonah is temporarily, at least, being like the wicked slave. He's happy for God to forgive him of his sins, but it's not okay for God to forgive someone else of their sins. And he wants to hold that 
against them. Well, again, these are common to men. These kinds of attitudes, this kind of grudge holding and bitterness and harboring animosity and hatred toward other men, especially if they've done something against me or my family. That's typically the real sticking point for us. We don't want them to receive anything good from the Lord. But it's not right for us to be like that. We have to love our enemies and we have to do good to those who hate us. And that was even true in the Old Testament as well. God is a God who is rich in mercy. He is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, even of the most notorious of sinners. If they repent, God will forgive them. And that is for our benefit, because one of the most notorious of sinners was the Apostle Paul. He even calls himself the chief of sinners. And yet, do we not benefit greatly from the mercy that God showed to him in the way that God used him in the building and establishing of the Gentile church and the writing of the books of the Bible that he wrote? Yes, God used and saved him and was merciful to him, and we've benefited greatly from that. And so God can do as He pleases, and we are to be like our Father who is in heaven. And if God is rich in mercy and abounding in love and faithfulness, then we need to be like Him as well. Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, Twenty-seven to thirty-six. Luke six twenty-seven says, "But I say to you, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you." If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. As your Father is merciful, so you be merciful. This is what Jesus is teaching. Here, that should both be in relation to enemies who have not repented. Right? There is a place to do good to them, because God is merciful even to the ungrateful against Him. But then especially if someone repents, we ought to do good to them because now they're a part of the household of faith and we ought to show mercy. And if God is willing to forgive them of the great sins they've committed against Him, then I also should be willing to forgive them of the lesser offenses they've committed against me. Because it doesn't matter what someone has done to me personally. It is not nearly as great as what that person has done to God and God forgives him, nor is it nearly as great as what I've done to God and God forgives me. Therefore, we should be able to do the same, to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Then one other point of introduction is Jonah does serve as a illustrious type of Christ uh, in the Old Testament. Specifically, his 
being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and then coming back out of the fish is a type or a symbol, a shadow of the death and resurrection of Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes this connection. And there are many similarities between Jesus and Jonah that we'll see as we go along. And we'll try to bring those forward as we, as we go uh, throughout the book. But Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. <clears throat> the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So here, when they are demanding a sign, right, not in a legitimate way, but doing it in an, because of unbelief, right? They're demanding a sign is not rising out of sincerity or a, a seeking of the truth. It's arising out of their own unbelief, and they're not doing it in the proper way. Jesus tells them that He's not going to give them any signs. The only sign that they will receive is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah, in his, uh, what happened to him is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. So also, uh, this is a type of Christ that is made here and is given to us greater. Uh, the light is shown on it there when Christ ascribes this uh, to himself. So this shadow finds its substance in the person of Christ. Okay, so that's by way of introduction. Okay, so let's read then verses 1 to 3 of Jonah, and then we'll make some comments here and conclude for the evening. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amiti, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into, uh, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here we see in verse 1, the first is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him, right? He didn't invent it. He didn't make it up. But he received this word from the Lord. The word originated with the Lord, and it came from the Lord to Jonah. And then Jonah was the instrument or means that God was going to use to publish or to announce this word on the earth. Right? This is the way that God used his prophets and his apostles. The prophecy or the word never originated in the prophet or the apostle. They were simply the means or the instrument used by God to bring this word, to bring his word into the world, to disseminate it among men. 
not that God needed them to do this, but this is God's chosen mean primarily to bring his word into the world of men and on this earth. He announces it to his prophets and then his prophets and apostles deliver it to the people. But we are to receive it not as a word from man, though it came through a man. We have to receive it as a word from God because that is the source. It originated with God. And therefore, whatever we find in the Bible, whether in the prophets or the apostles, is the unadulterated, pure word of God without any mixture of error, of confusion. If there is any confusion, it's because of our fault, because of our own weakness in our flesh, not because of any fault in the word of God. So this is a word from God, and it was not a product of his own imagination. And we must be reminded of that repeatedly, often, right? We need to be reminded of this truth every time we read the Word of God, that we are reading the living oracles of God, that it is from Him, and it is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it has bearing upon us in our life, and we have to treat it as such, right? We cannot play loose and fast with the Word of God and pick and choose this and that and what we want and what we do not like. Second Peter chapter 1 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. 20 to 21 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So there, the prophecy is not a matter of one's own interpretation. This is not Jonah's interpretation of the world, of life, of men, of events, of God. This is God's interpretation of the events given to Jonah, and then Jonah is the one who is revealing it, communicating this message to us. It did not originate in his will, but it originated in the will of God, and God used his spirit upon his prophets and apostles in such a way that what they delivered was indeed the very word of God. Now, he used circumstances, he used occasions, he used them, their own natural gifts and talents, but God, his spirit worked within them in such a way so that what was produced by them is indeed the word of God. And that's the way that we must receive it. Notice as well in verse 1 that he's called the son of Amiti. Here, showing us that Jonah is not a fictional character, he's not a mythological character. He's not the son of Zeus or Poseidon or some other false god of the uh, ancient Near Eastern world, but he is the son of a real man, right? Showing that he is a real person. So the book of Jonah is not dealing with fictional or mythological elements. It is a historical narrative recording for us actual events that happen to an actual person in an actual place, right? This is the way that we must receive these things. Even though some of what we will read is fascinating, it is amazing, right? It is wonderful, right? When we think and read about a man being thrown overboard, swallowed by a great sea monster, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, being in it for three days and three nights, and then puked out on the other side of, of, the, uh, of the world or, or there on the dry land, we think, well, how could this be, right? This is impossible. Well, it's, it is as impossible as a dead man being raised from the right. dead. It is as impossible as one who is born blind receiving his sight. It is as impossible as someone walking upon water. It is as impossible as a leper being healed and cleansed of his leprosy instantaneously. But these things, while impossible with men, 
when we factor in the ultimate X factor, who is God Almighty, and we bring Him into the equation, are all of these things impossible? No, with God, all things are possible, right? Even things that, humanly speaking, are impossible, like, such as a man surviving or living after being in a fish for three days, right? That's not conducive to life or to happiness, to live in that condition, right? It's not like Geppetto in uh, Pinocchio where there's plenty of space in the belly of the fish. It's impossible for someone to survive in a well or a fish for three days and not die. And yet Jonah comes out of that alive, alive. Whether by preservation or whether by what I think a resurrection, a resurrection from the dead. But can God raise the dead? Well, we better hope so, because all of our hope and dreams are based upon the reality that God's going to raise us from the dead. If God can't raise us from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are pitiful people, right? Because we have a hope that is a vain hope, because what we are banking on is that God will raise us from the dead and grant to us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God can do all these things. So these are fascinating events that happen in the life of Jonah, but they're not beyond the realm of possibility because God is the one who is doing it and God can do whatever He wants. He can create the entire universe simply by speaking His word. And He can bring a prophet up out of the dead, up out of the sea, and send him to go and to do His will. And that's the way that we must receive it. right? And also, it's not a... Though children love the book of Jonah, right? My children love, love it if we, when we have read this at home because it, it is a narrative. It is uh, amazing when they hear about these things and it does captivate them. And so in that way, it's good. It's good to teach and to go and focus on books like this for children because it's easier to keep their attention than, say, the book of Nahum or reading the end of Ezekiel that I don't even understand what's going on half the time there, right? So it's good to do that. And many times this is kind of consigned to the children's section, you know, of of biblical literature. And certainly it's a benefit to children, but it's not a children's tale, right? It's not a children's tale because it's mythical and fictional and kids will believe anything. No, it is beneficial to them, but it's beneficial to us as well. And it has great truths that are very valuable for even the most seasoned of Christians. And so we all can benefit greatly from the book of Jonah. Verse 2, the calling. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Here the calling is to arise, to go, and to cry. This is what... God calls Jonah to do, to leave where he's at, to go to the city of Nineveh, and then to cry out against it. And this is to Nineveh, not Israel, which again is a unique aspect of the book of Jonah, because most of the time the prophets were sent to Israel, not to other nations. Yet here, Jonah, his prophecy is in the city of Nineveh. It's taking place in a Gentile region, right, to Gentile people which also is anticipating the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. That God has not completely forsaken the Gentiles, though at this time in redemptive history, salvation is almost exclusively of the Jews. 
because the old covenant was delivered to them. But there is the anticipation that in the future, in the inauguration of the new covenant and in the coming of the Christ, that he will be a light not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles as well and their inclusion into the body of Christ. And here this is anticipated in the book of Jonah in his preaching to the men of Nineveh. And the way I take Matthew chapter 12 that we read earlier is that their repentance is true repentance that results in actual salvation and their inclusion into the household of faith. Otherwise, how are they going to rise up in judgment against the men of Jesus' day if they themselves are under the judgment of God? That doesn't make any sense. The reason they rise up is because they repented, but these who had a greater source of light and a greater source of truth failed to repent at that truth. Here, the calling <clears throat> has a twofold purpose. The stated purpose in verse 2 is to cry out against their sin because their wickedness has come up before the Lord. Right? Jonah is being sent to go and preach against the sins of Nineveh and to proclaim God's judgment upon them. This is what God tells him that he is supposed to do. That is the stated purpose of his ministry and of his prophesying in Nineveh. The hidden purpose is repentance and mercy. Right? This is what God is going to do. He doesn't say up front to Jonah, hey, I want you to go to the city, cry out against it, and I'm going to give them repentance and mercy. Now, that comes later. At the beginning, all that is stated is cry out against them because of their wickedness. It is great and has come up before me. And yet God's intention the whole time in sending Jonah there is to grant repentance and to give mercy to the men of Nineveh. And the means he will use to accomplish this is the ministry of Jonah and specifically his ministry of pronouncing judgment and preaching against their sin. That is what God uses to produce repentance in them and to grant them His mercy. And certainly God can do whatever He pleases. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel 18, 21 to 23. <clears throat> Ezekiel 18, 21. It says, But if the wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, and observes all my statutes, and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? And then also verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore repent and live. So God can grant repentance and can give mercy if he chooses, even to one who has practiced wickedness for a very long time, for a very long time. And this is what God has determined to do. He's going to do this, though it's not stated at the beginning. This is the result, and whatever comes to pass is the will of God, right? This is God's will. Okay, then verse 3. Jonah's response. But Jonah rose up 
to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here, <clears throat> he arose, but not to go and do what God called him to do, but he rose to flee to Tarshish. And in this, he is acting in a very ignorant way. He's acting as if he can escape from the presence of the Lord, though he knows it's an impossibility. He even pronounces such, right? And later in chapter 1, when he's talking to the sailors, he knows who God, who God is. He knows that God is in all places at all times. He knows that he cannot escape from the presence of the Lord. And yet, what is he doing? Trying to escape from the presence of the Lord. And this is often the case with us as well especially when there is sin. When we commit sin, it is ignorant because we're acting in an ignorant way. Though we know what we're doing is not right, it's not good, we know that it's foolish to do such things, and yet what do we do? We do it anyway. And this is what is happening to Jonah, who is a prophet of God, and yet as a prophet still maintains a remnant of the flesh. Right? Jonah is a true believer. He has to be a true believer, right? He is one of God's prophets, and yet there persists within him this remnant of the flesh that is hostile to the things of God, that resists the will of God, and he's acting upon the flesh, walking according to the flesh, and not walking according to the Spirit. He knows that this is foolish. He knows that he cannot escape from the presence of the Lord. Verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. If God made the sea and the dry land, then can we go anywhere on the sea and escape His presence? Can we go anywhere on the dry land and escape His presence? He's on the sea right now, and He knows why everything is happening to them, why this tempest and storm has risen up that is buffeting them and keeping them from going to where they want to go. He knows that He cannot escape, and yet here... He's trying to flee from the presence of God, right? There is orthodoxy, which is our beliefs, our understanding of God. <clears throat> his orthodoxy is very good and sound, but it's his practice, right? His practice is lacking, and that is often where we fail. In terms of our beliefs and our understanding, what we verbalize, what we say, what we're thinking conceptually about God, about Christ, about salvation, about the Christian life, Typically, we're very sound and we can articulate and describe what the Christian faith is, what our doctrine is, what we believe, what we ought to do. But then it comes to the practice of it, the practicing of it in the day-to-day -day life. And that is where we still need much growth. Not that we don't need growth in our theology. We always need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it's the experiential knowledge that is so often lacking in our day-to-day -day life, in the way that we treat our wives, or our husbands, or our children, or those that we disagree with, right? When we're impatient, when we're unloving, we know that we shouldn't do that, and yet what do we do? We do it anyway. Or when God calls us to do something, and we try to flee from His presence because we don't want to. Now, the question here is, why? Why is He doing this, right? Why is He fleeing from the presence of the Lord? And our first inclination may be that he's scared. He's scared. He's timid. He's afraid that if he goes and does what God calls him to do, that they might kill him. They're savage people. They might beat him up, throw him in prison, and that he is afraid of such things. But I don't think this is the case at all. In chapter 4, verse 2, 
he tells us why he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord and why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He has his suspicions of what God is going to do, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't want to be a part of it. Jonah 4, verse 2. Verse 1, he says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and, abound, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So, he knew that God was gracious, that God is compassionate, that God is merciful, that He abounds in loving kindness, and that when God pronounces judgment upon a people, it is often conditional, conditioned on their non-repentance. If they don't repent, then the judgment that is pronounced will come upon them. But if they repent, God will relent or that, or that God will not bring that judgment upon them. He knew that God was like this, and he was afraid that if he went to Nineveh and he preached to them against their sin, that they would repent and that God would be merciful to them. And so in order to forestall that, in order to keep that from coming to pass, he tries to flee to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord because he does not want to be the instrument used by God to bring about repentance in these people. He would have been, I think, happy to go there if there was an assurance that God would destroy them in 40 days. And he could sit outside the city and watch fire and brimstone come down from heaven and wipe them off the face of the earth. He would have been happy to go there if that would have been the outcome. But he knew that God intended to be merciful to them. And he did not want any part of that. Now, it's very easy for us to see that and to ridicule, mock, scoff at the prophet. And in some regards, he is, um, it's not desirable to be like that. So it's not, it, that's a bad thing for him to behave uh, in this way, right? To, to have this kind of an attitude. And really, you can say that Jonah is the best, worst prophet in the whole Bible because he's the best in that everywhere he goes, people are converted, right? Repentance. The sailors repent. The people of Nineveh repent. But he's the worst because he's always disobeying and he's always complaining about it, right? In all these things that are happening. And yet, so often, we find ourselves very similar to Jonah. Because God has also given us a commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. And that we are called to call men to repent, to call sinners to repent. And yet we often fail to do so. We flee from the presence of the Lord, though not literally, but we do so by our silence, by our disinterest in, in these things, by our timidity in speaking to our loved ones, to our friends, of trying to have uh, talks to them about the gospel, about salvation, and about judgment uh, in the, the, the life to come. And so uh, it's easy to look at Jonah and say, wow, how could he be so uncompassionate? How could he be so so hard and calloused toward these people, and yet it's very easy for us to have the same attitude uh, and to not do anything to try to produce or to bring about the salvation of those that we love, our friends, our family, uh, even our enemies. And so we don't want to be like that, right? We want to um, promote 
the gospel and promote salvation. And may the Lord use us as the instrument or tool to bring about repentance and to give mercy uh, to other men, just as he did to Jonah, though reluctantly. May we do it willingly and joyfully and gladly.